0: When you hit a challenge, you can either say, this is a big old threat, it's really bad, I should be nervous. Or you can hit a challenge and you can say, this could be a real big opportunity.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Speaker Series Rewind. My name is Katherine Martin, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha, and I'm super excited to kick off today's episode all about doing better work. For those of you who are new to the show, in this podcast, we revisit interviews from High Alpha Speaker Series events featuring industry leaders, investors, founders, running everything from professional racing teams to SaaS startups. And for today's episode, we're revisiting our speaker series with Max Yoder, co-founder and CEO of Lessonly. Since this interview, Lessonly has been acquired by sales enablement leader Seismic, which is super exciting. And we're especially proud to share this episode today because Lessonly is one of our studio companies here at High Alpha. And you'll hear from Max himself all around their philosophy for doing better work. This is something that is really core to their culture. And every lesson you'll learn is cultivated from Max's own book, things that they've implemented internally, as well as things that they've learned from their clients like Nike and beyond. So without further ado, let's jump to the episode.
2: We get to do a lot of rewarding and exciting things at High Alpha, but nothing tops this for me. Max and his team, which I know he'll talk about, you know, they've just built an amazing business and we've had the pleasure and the privilege of kind of riding alongside of them for years as uh, co-founders and friends and investors. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, what we, it's what we hope for. We've got a bunch of companies in our portfolio, frankly, that kind of look up to Lee, both in terms of their growth, but maybe even more importantly, the kind of company uh, that they're building. And uh, what you're going to hear about today is, I think, Max's really good work to weave in things that he uh, believes and how that affects the company that, that that he runs every day. And that's not an easy thing. This isn't a lessonly commercial, but it's very applicable to, to building and, and running a successful company. So let's give a big round of applause and let Max take it away. Thank you, Mike.
0: All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. I know uh, many of you I saw before this and they, you all said you bu- bought the book and now you got an extra copy, so give it to somebody. But I appreciate everybody who supported the book so far. It's been a dream of mine. I, one of my favorite things to do is speak at a High Alpha event. And it's one of my least favorite things to do because speaking in front of Christian and Mike is one of the most nerve-wracking things in the world to me because I have such a tremendous amount of respect for them. And I just always really want to make them proud. So I'm really happy to be here and do this. I'm so glad you have the book. I've never uh, taken a picture of so many of the same book in one spot. It just makes my day. I just want to tell you you a little bit today about about the book, uh, why we wrote it. uh, And I'm hoping that you can get some benefit from it. What I'm going to do is kind of give you the notes so that you still enjoy reading it. I don't want you to pick it up and be like, yeah, he already said this, and then start skipping the pages. The book is much more concise than I am. It took like a year and three months to write. It is way more concise than I am. There's a lot of needless words up here, ideally a lot fewer needless words in the book. So I'm going to give you a highlight. At Lessonly we help people do better work so they can live better lives. We do that first and foremost by making training software. Uh, Training software is really all about highlighting what works uh, in a company. If we need somebody to do something, we we bring it up and we say, this is what we need you to do. Training software allows us to do that in a really effective and efficient way. What we can do is we can say, hey, team, here's some behaviors that are really important. Here's how to do those behaviors, and here's a way to practice those behaviors before you're in front of a customer. That's what we do at Lessonly. We tell people what behaviors are important, and we give them ways to practice those behaviors. That's the first way we help people do better work. We think it's really important to help them do better work because we know they take that home with them. Who here has had a really good day at work and then taken that home with them? Great. You're probably gonna not, you don't have to raise your hands again, but you've probably had not so good of a day at work and taken that home. Our our job is to bring confidence and competence to, to, to teams all over the world so that they can do better work and take that home with them. We think the levity they bring to the door when they talk to their friends, their family members, it's important to help with that. And we can make a direct impact on people's psyches, and mental health, and happiness. So we think that's really special. Better Work starts with our training software, but it's bigger than that. We started to realize that training was our kind of first handshake with a bunch of companies. We have 700 customers now. So we'd kind of do that as our first handshake. We'd say, we really want to help you do, make a great training program. And then they'd start building a great training program. And they'd come back and be like, what else do you have? Because this is working. What, what, what other tricks do you got in the bag? And we start telling them things we were doing inside our company that were working well. And they'd say, oh, I'm going to go try that. And I'll share some examples of that today. And then they come back and be like, hey, it's working. What else do you have? And we were like, this is pretty cool. People are coming to us and asking us just basically, hey, how do you behave? Because we'd like to try to behave that way and see if it works for us. This book is really just a way of us encapsulating ways that we think everybody should behave on a team. It's my personal opinion, but I've seen a lot of them work. I've seen all of them work. Everybody on a team creates an energy. And this book is all about kind of breaking down what are really great behaviors for any given teammate. So I'm going to walk you through them today. What we looked for when we were writing this book, about a year and three months ago, Kyle Lacey, who's in the back of the room, said, hey, you should write a book. I said, great, what do you want me to write it about? And he said, you'll figure it out,
1: <laughs>
0: which is very nerve-wracking. The first couple of versions of Do Better Work were not very good. And many, many chapters we wrote were not very good. We put the good ones in the book. We tried to figure out what was better work built on, and so we looked around our team and said, what are the behaviors that lead to progress? We looked in our software and we said, what are the things we've learned about building great software and just creating clarity in companies? We looked at our customers. Nike's a customer of ours. We said, what have we learned from the people that we work with? And then we put it all together and said, guess what? Here's what better work is. When a team has camaraderie and clarity, Progress is inevitable. It took us a while to get here, but here's what we realized. All a team really needs is camaraderie and clarity, and then they start making a lot of progress. This whole book is rooted around building camaraderie, creating clarity, so we can make more progress. Camaraderie is all about mutual trust and respect. If you do not have mutual trust and respect with your teammates, it's very, very difficult to, to be vulnerable. It's very, very difficult to collaborate. But when a team has mutual trust and respect, what it usually looks like is one teammate wants for another teammate the same things they want for themselves. We're rooting for one another just like we're rooting for our own progress. Camaraderie is a beautiful thing. When you feel it on a team, people are less worried about how they look and more worried about doing great work. Clarity is the next thing. When people join together and they feel that unity, they need to know what they're after, and they're probably going to get there. If you have a clear goal, an attainable goal uh, that we're all aligned around and you have camaraderie, we're going to make a lot of progress. So this book's all about saying how do we create camaraderie, how do we create clarity, and how do we make a lot of progress. So now we're going to open up the book and talk about a few things that are inside it. And I'm going to try to be brief here today because I think the Q&A is going to be, be the part where we kind of unpack the most interesting stuff. But I'm going to take you through these chapters now. The first chapter is about being vulnerable. This is kind of the foundational element that makes for a great. It's been my experience that a lot of us believe we have to be really good at everything and we get really embarrassed when we're not. It doesn't create for a great teammate when people come in and they posture about what they know and what they don't know. What does make for a great teammate is somebody comes in and goes, I know I know some things and I know I don't know others. All of us come together and we say, I know I know some things and I know I don't know others, and we say, what do you know? Here's what I know, and we start collaborating. That's really vulnerability in a nutshell. When I say I don't know, when I say I don't have the answer, when I say I need help, those are all uh, elements of vulnerability. A lot of people struggle to do that at work. And here's why they struggle to do it. They think leaders are supposed to know the answer. And I don't mean leaders as in managers. Anybody in the team can be a leader. You're a leader through moral authority or hierarchical authority or both. Moral authority authority means people just look up to you and want to follow you. Hierarchical authority is they feel like they have to, because you're their boss. Anybody in here can be a leader, because moral authority is open for anyone. A lot of us believe that leaders know the answer. We kind of have the Steve Jobs mentality of, man, that guy just seemed to get it. He just seemed to know. He didn't seem to need much help. That is bogus. He needed a lot of help. He had thousands of people helping him every day. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, I think you are expected to learn the answer. It's a big difference in just one word. Leaders know the answer to leaders learn the answer. When leaders learn the answer, they can ask any question they want. They can explore all they want. And when they hit a roadblock, they can go, I'm not sure, but let me go try to figure it out. That sort of behavior trickles down. And when I say trickles down, I mean it inspires anybody who looks up to that leader. If the leader is allowed to say, I don't know, so are they. But if the leader postures and acts like they have all their stuff together, guess what they're going to do too? We hit a lot of icebergs in businesses because people think that their leaders have it all together. They have it all figured out. So they don't say anything when they see us going after something that maybe isn't a good idea. Have you ever done something at work, uh, or have you ever seen somebody do something at work and gone, man, that's not a very good idea, and not said it to them? <laughs> that happens a lot. That's not, that's not really a teammate, but often that be, people don't speak up because they feel like the person who is saying that this is the thing we're going to do isn't being vulnerable enough for them to raise their hand. All of us need to open up and say, I don't know all the time. I don't have all the answers. I need help. We are all scared. I know every one of you is scared. There's somebody in your life and your family who freaks you out. Maybe you freak yourself out. But we walk into work and we act like we have it all together. We've got to cut that out. I don't mean we need to bring our drama to work. We just need to bring an open mind to work. We need to come into work and say, hey, I'm going to do my best today, but I don't have all the answers, I'm going to need a lot of help from from, from you all. Once we can be vulnerable, we can start to do all these other behaviors. The first one that I want to uh, touch on is share before you're ready. This is all about making getting done match what's needed. I started to realize that a lot of times people work on things at work, and they're not the right things. So I tried to articulate what that looks like in a Venn diagram. It's just two simple circles. One of them is what's getting done, and the other one is what's needed. A lot of people, when they start a project, they go in a hole, and they start going, I'm going to knock this project out of the park. And in three weeks, when I show it to my teammates, they're all going to be like, what a genius you are. What ends up happening in that situation is what's getting done ends up not overlapping very much with what's needed, because we didn't sanity check our progress as we went. It's really, really important that what's getting done matches what's needed. And when that happens, it looks like this. What's getting done is what's needed. How do we make sure that what's getting done is what's needed? We just communicate more. If I'm in charge of a project, going into a hole does not help my teammates. What does help my teammates is spending an hour on the first draft of what I think is a good idea and then going to the people who are ultimately going to benefit from it and saying, what am I missing? What do you love about this direction and what am I missing? And what can I maybe not work on that I thought I needed to work on because I wasn't sure what to work on? And then the teammates go, this thing's great. I love this part. I don't think you need this other part. That's not really what we're looking for. You save yourself a ton of trouble. You zero in on what's actually needed, and then you get it done. Then you come and you go, check it out. And they're not surprised, because they helped you get there. Everybody feels a little ownership in your project, and you get a lot, make a lot more progress a lot more quickly. And it's all about communicating more. So the next time you get that project, what I want you to do is go to the people who are ultimately supposed to benefit from it, and sanity check it with them, little by little. In the book, I give you guidance for exactly how to do that. And I really hope it helps. Next thing I want you to think about is looking for opportunity. Man, are you going to hit a lot of challenges at work. Challenges are inevitable. But there are some folks who I think believe that a really good team doesn't hit snags. I think this because people have come to me and been like, what are we going to do? We hit a a snag. And I'm like, yes, that is going to keep happening. (laughs) It might happen on a daily basis. Because this is a tough thing we do. Uh, working in companies and the world constantly changes around us and people have all have different needs and sometimes we're not going to do things correctly. Looking for opportunity is all about when challenges being inevitable but the way we face them being a choice. When you hit a challenge you can either say this is a big old threat, it's really bad, I should be nervous or you can hit a challenge you can say this could be a real big opportunity. Some of our greatest outcomes at Lessonly have come in the face of challenge Something has provoked us and forced us to think differently about a problem and come up with a new idea that actually we're better off because the challenge arrived. If we can short circuit our moment of this is really bad and go to how do I make this really good, we start making progress a lot faster. I I write about Scott Dorsey in this chapter in particular because he's incredibly good at this. Connor is my business partner, lesson Lean. We come to him a lot and we go, it didn't work. The thing we were working on is not working. And he goes. OK, what are our alternatives? And we start whiteboarding out alternatives. He doesn't go, what the hell, guys? He goes, what are all alternatives? He gets pumped because he knows this is the name of the game. We hit a challenge. We got to do something about it. And he gives us a playbook for how to do it by saying, let's start listing out all of our alternatives. We'll find the top three alternatives, then we'll pick our best one. And now we got a new plan. Every time he does that, my energy rebuilds. Every time he does that, I get back on the horse I start riding again instead of being depressed and being sad. What I used to do was get up in a ball and go, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. What I try to do now is talk through it and find the opportunity in the situation. Next up, ask clarifying questions. This is my first piece of poetry ever. To be sure you understand, ask for more, raise your hand. As we get older, we do not ask very many questions. To create clarity, we need to ask questions because there's this thing called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge, uh, here, here's what it means. It's a phenomenon that when I learn something, I start to believe everybody else has learned that thing too. Have you ever seen somebody behave in a way and go, why the heck do they do it that way? Because you've learned a different way, maybe a better way? They haven't. That's why they do it that way. You've learned something, it does not mean other people have. But it's really difficult to remember that. It's actually a bias. We, once we know something, it's tough to remember that not everybody else does. So what we tend to do is under explain, because we think other people are on the same page as we are. We go up and we say, you get it, right? This thing, that thing, the other thing. And then we walk away like, that was clear. And people are like, ooh, I don't get it. It's really important that that, that somebody in a leadership position, somebody who's saying, is this clear, says, what did you hear? But it's also really important that you raise your hand and go, that didn't make sense to me. Or can you explain that one more time? Or what do you mean? Or what do you base that on? Really, really basic stuff. Every one of these things is really, really basic stuff that we don't do at all, or very little, that we need to do more. The really cool thing about this is none of this is rocket science. It's just focusing on the fundamentals. And asking clarifying questions is something that we do when we're kids, and we stop doing it when we get older. But the cool thing is, if you start asking more clarifying questions, you can start helping your teammates in a big way. You can be the brave one who makes sure everybody's on the same page. That's what being a good teammate's all about. It's not about being right. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about making sure everybody has alignment. And when you ask questions, you can bring more alignment. Highlight what's working is our next one. We don't talk a lot on teams about what's going well. We talk a lot on teams about what isn't going well. Can you imagine having a meeting where the whole meeting is, what's working around here? You'd be like, what the hell is this? I got work to do. <laughs> I don't want to talk about what's working. We've got so many problems. But the reality is, what's working is the key to our success a lot of the times. We just don't share it enough. Think about it this way, 100 of us in this room. Let's say we're all on the same team and a couple of us have learned something that works. We probably start to assume because of the curse of knowledge that other people already know that that behavior works. So we don't tell anyone. And then guess what, 98 of us have no idea what's working. When we highlight what's working, we make time to lift up what works like Baby Simba and go, check it out. I have just discovered something great. I've just discovered something that makes it more easy to do one thing, or the other thing, or the next thing. We need to make more time to promote and praise the things that work so that we all can take advantage of them. You're going to stumble upon some some things, I want to stumble upon some things, but if we don't highlight them, we're going to leave other people in the dark. Problems take over our mind. It's said that they weigh two and a half times more heavily as a positive thing. A negative thing tends to weigh two and a half times more heavily on our brains than a positive thing. That's some scientists, some social scientists who say that. If you've ever ever been in a situation where somebody's giving you praise and then giving you a critique, you probably can relate to that because you probably remember the critique and you forgot the praise. It's the way our brains work. It's why we're alive. We need to protect ourselves from threats. So we tend to weigh very heavily the, the, the challenges and the threats. So it's really, really important that we, hard, that we kind of work against that hardwiring and highlight more of what's working. What's working is not a box already checked. It's something to be shared. Have difficult conversations. I want us to turn conflict into compassion and progress. I grew up thinking that conflict was a net negative all the time. I grew up thinking if there was any signs of conflict, we were a dysfunctional family or we were dysfunctional friends. I hid from conflict. I was scared of conflict. What I realized over time is conflict is just information. It's all it is. It's just information that we can learn from or ignore. What do you tend to want to do with information? Learn from it, right? I want you to start thinking about conflict as something to learn from. We just aren't taught how to broach it. I don't know about you, but I think I got two hours and 12 years of conflict management teachings in my grade school and my primary school. Two hours, and they were usually the kind of the, 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 the lunch special where you go into the gymnasium and some external group comes in and does like a few conflict resolution things, and they're like, now nah, you get it, right? Then they walk away, and you're like, two, two hours out of 12 years is not enough. It's not nearly enough. One of, my, one of my jobs, I feel, in this world is to make sure our primary schools teach kids how to work through conflict, because we're leaving them in a position where every day at work, They're in a a situation that they maybe could know what to do, but we haven't taught them what to do. So guess what they do do? They tend to complain about their colleagues. That does not create camaraderie when we complain about our colleagues. Tend to to complain or bitch about them behind their backs. Please don't do that. Please read this book. I got to take this model called nonviolent communication uh, by a gentleman named Marshall Marshall Rosenberg. He passed in 2015. Uh, But I believe that this man was an angel put on Earth. Since the 1960s, he's been helping people get through conflict in a way that is what he calls nonviolent or compassionate, if that word works better for you. He says violence is really anything that causes hurt or harm. Have you ever been in an argument and caused somebody else hurt or harm? That's violent communication. But when we practice nonviolent communication, we can express ourselves in a way that people can hear us that, doesn't, that causes minimal amounts of hurt and harm. We all need it in our relationships. We share this book with every teammate at Lesson Lee. Casey Cumbos here in the front of the audience. She's probably not going to like that I'm shouting her out. But she brought it into the business. And I appreciate it greatly, because it's helped me at home with my wife, who's here today. It's helped me uh, with my other teammates. It's helped me with my family and my friends. I was given the opportunity to take nonviolent communication and put the essentials in this book. So please read that and then buy the actual book, because there's nothing like learning it from the person himself, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. What it does is it teaches us how to talk about observations, feelings, needs, and requests. It creates a simple model that we can all follow to discuss things that frustrate us or make us sad, and also things that make us happy. We can turn conflict into compassion and progress. We can make conflict a competitive advantage. You want to know how much we don't get done at work because of conflict that we don't know how to deal with? I wonder what the GDP would look like if we were all dealt with our conflict a little more uh, natu- or a, a little better. We're slowing ourselves down because we have no idea what we're doing. I'd like to change that one person at a time. You can be that person. Get more agreements. This is my second to last one, and then we're going to go into some, Q, uh, some Q&A. Getting more agreements is all about having fewer unspoken expectations. I wish somebody would have taught me this when I was a kid as well. We can walk around uh, thinking that people should know what we want them to do. And then when they don't do it, we can get frustrated. Anybody ever done that to somebody before? Yeah, all of you. I can see head nodding. We all have these unspoken expectations that we carry with us, and then we hold people accountable to them. Do you like it when somebody holds you accountable to something you don't know about? I don't either. Why are we doing it to other people? Agreement is all about getting around that. It's all, agreement is all about a better way. When we get an agreement, we come to somebody and we say, hey, I need something from you. What do you think about this? And they can go, that doesn't work for me. Then we don't have an agreement. Or they can go, that works for me, but I'd like to modify it a little bit. I say, OK, tell me about that. We come to some, some understanding, some mutual common ground. And we go, OK, can we agree on that? Then boom, yes. An agreement could be <coughs> as simple as, hey, next time this paperwork comes into the business, do you mind sharing it with Brian first before you share it with me? Because he needs to see it before I do. That person can go, yeah, no problem. If they bring it to you before they bring it to Brian next time, you can go, hey, remember the agreement? Brian looks at this, and then I look at it and go, oh, yeah, OK, cool, cool. But if they keep doing it, you can be like, I'm frustrated. We had an agreement. We talked about this. This is the third time that this has happened, and I'm frustrated. What's going on? And then they go, oh, wait, yeah, are right. We did enough agreement, and I'm not following it, and I'm sorry. What it tends to happen otherwise is we just go, I'm mad at you, and the person's <coughs> like, why? We didn't have an agreement in place. We can't do that to people. We need to have common ground. And when we have common ground to stand on, a lot of things get a lot better. So make time to agree on the behaviors you want to see. One thing that my wife did is she said, Wednesday nights, you take out the trash. Every other Thursday night, you take out the recycling. Do we have an agreement? I'll do all these other things. And I say, yes. When I break that agreement, I always feel very guilty.
2: <laughs>
0: because we made an agreement. <clears throat> but she gets to go, that frustrates me, because now we got a full trash can. we got people coming over this weekend. But at least we know what's expected of one another. Lastly, bring brightness to the room. I need you to know that emotions are contagious. And we all have a great power over over the way other people feel just simply by the way we approach something. If you felt any joy from me or any excitement from me today, it's probably made you a little more joyful, a little more excited. Because whether I like it or not, my emotion is contagious, just like yours are. If we walk into a room and somebody goes, this is going to be a drag, everybody starts to feel like this is going to be a drag. If we walk into a room and somebody goes, this is going to be awesome. Everybody's like, hell yeah, it is. What energy do you bring to a room is what this chapter is all about. And it doesn't have to be a physical room. It could be your Slack chat. But if you're a perennial downer, it's, it's wearing on other people. And if you're perennial upper, you're giving other people energy. We all have this tremendous power to give or take energy from other people. What do you do with your power? The book? looks like this. Inside, you got some stickers. At this point, I'd like to talk to Mr. Fitzgerald. That was excellent,
2: Max. I've got a bunch of prepared questions, but I don't know if I'm going to use them because I took some notes while you're talking. Great. So we're going to kind of warm things up, and then we'll, we'll turn over to the audience. Um, you know, one thing that, that strikes me, uh, Max, first of all, congratulations. I mean, seriously, I, I don't want to overlook that. This is a big accomplishment, and I know that you've actually been working on it for a long time. Yeah, thank you. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the process of writing the book and, and kind of tying into the business benefit. But, but the thing that occurred to me standing back there, listening to you speak and kind of looking at the audience is, man, if I worked at Lessonly, I could take this book and kind of roll right in to work. And, yeah. you know, we've got, this, we, we've got this language now. We've got these concepts. And, and some of the people are fortunate and do work at Lessonly. For a lot of the rest of us, right, organizationally, how does this, you know, do I need to get this book and buy it for my manager? I mean, is it applicable, right, even if you don't work at Lessonly?
0: Yeah, great question. So the, in, in the introduction, there's a brief uh, paragraph that just says, if you wanna see it, be it. And the whole idea there is there's nothing you can do in this world that, bring, that influences other people other than your actions and the things that you uh, celebrate, the behaviors that you celebrate. So what are your behaviors and what are the behaviors that you celebrate? If you want to bring better work into your company, please do not uh, use the excuse of, it just won't work in my team, because it's on you to at least try. If you're summarily giving up before you try to take this stuff into your job, that's on you. But if you bring better work into your team, whether anybody else adopts it or not, doesn't matter. You are doing your job. Mm. That's with everything in life. I cannot tell you how many times I hear, I can't do that because of something else. It's like, oh, we all have these contingency plans. Once these people get their shit together, I'll get my shit together. You just got to start getting your shit together. And when I say if you want to see it be it, what I mean is you motivate and inspire people with your actions. Hmm. So act a certain way. And guess what? It'll start to permeate. And if it doesn't start to permeate, at least you did the right thing. And maybe it'll tell you that you should be at a different job. <laughs> yeah. If people aren't picking up on like, hey, I'm trying, just trying to highlight what works because it's really important that we all know what works, maybe get out of there. Or first, talk to them and say, here's a book, maybe read it. And if you don't get very good reception, maybe then get out of there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good. That's good. I think, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And part of that is, I mean, to do that, you've got to be ready to be vulnerable, yeah. right? In other words, if I am in an environment where maybe we, as a, as a team, we're not all there, we do have some dysfunction. And that's yeah. pretty normal, yeah. right? Yeah. Even, in, even in well-run companies, there's yeah. some of that. Kind of taking that first step is about being vulnerable, and I think that's why you put that at the beginning of the book. Yep. Right. That's not the last chapter because right. that's kind of table stakes. Yeah. Talk about you, you. You've used the word vulnerable long before it was kind of popular or in vogue, in my opinion. Thanks for right. good. So good. so how did how did that become kind of the foundation or the basis? I mean, was it was there was it a, something in your own life or a point in time when you remember, hey? I've got to live into this, or was that something that you learned over a longer period of time?
0: Yeah, it's just, I was really fortunate to have teammates at Lessonly in the earliest days who responded really positively to my vulnerability, this very genuine vulnerability of, oh, no, you've just accepted jobs to be my teammate, and I don't know exactly what to do, and I hope that doesn't scare you. I, tr- I, was trying to be vulnerable, I tried to be vulnerable with folks uh, like Connor before he even joined the, because I didn't want him to regret it. I was like, Connor, you're going to come into this company. Here's a bunch of things we don't have figured out. Here's a bunch of things I don't know the answer to. Do you still want to come? (laughs) Because I don't want you walking in here thinking we have our act together and then being really surprised when there's a bunch of places where I don't even know what the act is supposed to look like. And he really responded positively to that. And then Mitch did, Corey did, Carly did. And it was like, oh, hey, this is not just, this is a small sample size, right? But I think it's just human nature is we all can relate to the feeling of not knowing what to do. And as soon as somebody says, I don't know what to do, we have some empathy for that situation because we've been there ourselves. And we start to go, how can I help? This person's being honest with me. And so I think it was just, it was situational. Yeah. It was that people responded to it positively. And when I saw people not being vulnerable, I saw the downsides. Yep. Yeah.
2: So, so not, not so much, hey, I need to recruit Connor, I better be vulnerable, right? That wasn't the lead. That was after the fact and you reflect and say, man, that was a lot of vulnerability yeah. that, that we showed each other in the, in the beginning. Now, fast forward, 100 people on the team, 700 customers, some might say, should you grow out of that, right? Or should we get beyond that kind of, hey, let's all join together and we don't know the answers. And in fact, you guys have made this a big part of your culture. Maybe talk about that from a, from a customer standpoint, right? You don't behave differently yeah. when, you're, when you're with a customer or trying to win a deal or trying to solve a problem with right. something that's, that's not working was that conscious or is that just an extension of of maybe what happened in the early days
0: yeah we we had we have our first big 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 opportunity like big kind of game we've had many game changing opportunities this is like the biggest one in the history of the business that we're working on right now and it was really nerve-wracking to take that vulnerability into a big pitch meeting with kind of seasoned executives uh, and say we're not going to build everything that you want us to build That's vulnerability, right? It's not posturing. It's saying we're just not going to do that because you're just one customer and we have 700 others. And you're an important one, but they are too. And would you want us to tell you that you were more important than them? Because guess what? We'd probably do that to the next customer too. Uh, So kind of going in there and kind of laying it out and saying this is how we behave. This is how we operate. And we don't know exactly what to do next. And we don't know exactly what you're going to need. And there's probably going to be things that don't go exactly how we want them to. And we're going to talk about it and figure it out. And they were like, we really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was nervous as heck to do it. And I started to realize, oh, my gosh, I'm, go- I'm thinking about changing my behavior for the exact reason you shouldn't think about changing your behavior. Like, the reason we got here was we were trying to we, we try to be genuine with people about what we can and cannot do. And they really appreciate that. These are people, too. Yeah. They just work at a big company. But so, they're still people.
2: So, so prepare, let's talk about that for a minute. I think it's very, very interesting. Because this is, this is applicable, right? I mean, we all have something in our life or our business that is potentially game changing. So in the prep for that, was there discussion of you know we should we should we should commit to doing that. Yeah. Even though that's gonna that's going to complicate things. I mean, what, yeah. Or was it like, hey, this is, this is baked in, man. This is just who we no, are. we did to talk ourselves into okay. it. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we,
0: we, we were in the me room and we were like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, we got to keep doing that thing that we've been doing a long time. Yeah. And what should we say here? We know what to say here. Yeah. Which is, we're not sure yet. We're going to need to get some more information from you. Yeah. We're going to figure it out. It's not that we don't have faith in ourselves. Right. It's that we haven't met you yet, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. We don't know everything that you need. We don't want to guess and assume, and you probably don't want somebody guessing and assuming. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. And people get the opposite 90% of the time. Yes. So it's kinda of like conflict being a competitive advantage. Vulnerability is a competitive advantage. People are like, oh, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you want to be, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I
2: I I think so. I think so. Let's kind of stay on the on the on the the business tip here. You're the CEO of a High growth company that's raised capital that employs you know a bunch of people. What was the what was the lead up or the decision around? Hey, I think I think we should take a year and write a book. And I know that you did a lot of stuff concurrent, but this was a this is a big commitment, right? Somebody who's in the audience thinking about, now well, I, I should maybe I should think about writing a book. Yeah, that's. That, that was a big time commitment. So yeah. how, did you, how did you and the rest of the team get comfortable that this was a, that this was a really good idea? Yeah, it, it, I think we just figured out it was a really
0: good idea. <laughs> 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 I, I've been nervous as heck uh, for about a year and three months that this was not a really good idea and that people are going to pick up this and go, meh. I mean, that's been, my, that's been my concern every night that I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, this is not good enough or people already know this. Or what am I missing? That's a big question, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, what am I missing? What's gonna be the thing that somebody's like, you missed this whole part. So I shared it with like you know 40 people before, as we were, as we were writing, I just kept. Ben, who edited the book, uh, really made sure that he was editing it, but also that 30, 40 other people at Lesson Lee were editing it. And we found those parts that were like, this is, <laughs> you're missing something. And ultimately I think it, it became better, but I've always wanted to write a book. I told myself that before I die, I would write a book and I was gonna do it when I was retired, and then Kyle Lacey, VP of Marketing, gave me permission to do it when I was not retired right now. So if I would've said no to that, how badly do I really wanna write a book? Would've been how I, what I wanna ask myself. Yeah. Uh, I really badly wanna write a book, and it was really neat to be able to write something that I, that I you know, get to be really proud of while not being retired yet. Yes. And it was also really good to work out my thoughts, and I'll stop after this, but just, I, I, I said this to Mike last week, We have to-do lists, right, that we take information out of our head and we put in a to-do list because we don't want to forget, but then all the rest of our thoughts, we think we can manage them up here. We can't even manage our to-do list in our head, but we keep our biggest, most important thoughts up here and we make time to write the to-do list down. (laughs) Go get bread. It's not nearly as important as, what do I believe in? What do I care about? And when you start writing things down, you don't have to publish it, just do it for you. Because you've got contradictions in your head, just like I do. You believe two different things that don't work together, and you don't even know it until you start writing it down. Or you've got these ideas. You've got a thesis for how to live that you don't even realize you have, and once you start writing it down, you will find it. Just do it for you. Don't just manage your to-do list on paper. Also manage everything else in your head. It's just good therapy as well. Processing things, writing them down, real good therapy.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You, you, when we were speaking last week, I think what you said was, not until you actually sat and tried to put some of these thoughts on paper did you realize that you were holding maybe some, some different or conflicting thoughts at the same time. Correct. Right? And when you've got to commit it to paper and put it out for other people to read, it better be right. And right. you can't have a conflicting,
0: yeah. and that may be one reason it took a long time. It took longer than you thought, Oh, my right? gosh. Yeah, I missed three deadlines. Uh, I think I was supposed to be done last April. <laughs> Uh, and I got, we finished the dress after this past Christmas. Yes, yeah. So it took a while. Yeah, interesting. But, I mean, write a good book, not a book that got done in April was the plan. You know, like, let's write a good book, not a book done by April. Yes. And Kyle was kind enough to go, you can have more time. Yeah, that's good. Good decision, Kyle. Good decision.
2: Thank you. So the other thing that I love about this book, i I find myself buying business books because I'm like wow I'm, I'm business it looks like a good book I should I should read that I have a stack of them and often I will get about 80 90 pages in and it will seem as if the book is kind of repeating itself right that yeah. I think publishers which you chose not to do we'll yeah. talk about that want 300 pages yeah. right so they can charge thirty bucks or whatever. That's it right. is. What 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 other decisions went into this? I mean you you you've got a hundred page book, right? Which which I really enjoyed and I think encompasses all the all the stuff that you wanted to talk about. You chose not to use a publisher, you chose to write it yourself. You had people on the team do the illustrations, talk a
0: little bit about that process what other things did you consider how you wound up with this yeah so you can uh, go to a, a publisher and they'll kind of do soup to nuts everything that you need I'll, you know you'll write but they'll tell you what they want you to write which is kind of would kind of be frustrating because it's supposed to be you know <laughs> my beliefs not the publishers beliefs but they can kind of do all the all the illustrations all of the design all of the editing and that's that's cool we had a team of folks who were really excited about doing that and I'm really glad that we we did so because I think everybody stretched and grew in that way. So we did the whole thing. Uh, Or you can do kind of a middle ground where you write everything and then there's third parties like Idea Press, a great company that will do the binding of the books, will do the editing of the books, will kind of do the middle part. When we went to a publisher, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, yeah. Yeah, we went to a publisher and they were like, hey, it's like the worst venture capital deal in the world. They're like, (laughs) you pay us a bunch of money, we'll own the copyright, and then we'll pay you maybe 30% if we sell something. but guess what? We'll try to get you in Barnes & Noble. We'll try.
2: Because everybody it. goes to Barnes & yes, Noble. Yes, right. right.
0: That, was, that, was, that, that was their big pitch. But the thing that I really got stuck on wasn't that the deal was so bad. It was they said you have to write 40 to 60. The deal was bad because nobody knows who I am. So if somebody knows who you are, you can probably get a better deal. I didn't have that benefit. So they were like, pay us and we'll publish your book. It's like, ooh, that just doesn't feel right. But the main thing that didn't feel right was you have to write a minimum of 40,000 words, and, uh, between forty to 60,000 words. And I said, is that negotiable? No. Why is that not negotiable? Well, Max, if the book isn't thick enough. We can't sell it for $27 a copy. It's like, you want me to, uh, this book's 15,000 words. They wanted me to write two times, more than two times, almost three times this book as a minimum so they could sell it for $27 a copy. Not so it could be a great book, so they could sell it for $27 a copy. So we just didn't go that route. And I'm sure other publishers do things differently. We didn't go to that many of them, but we were just like, let's just do this ourselves. And it was great because we have creative, creative control. If you're thinking about writing a book, the advice that I was given uh, by a woman who's had a number one New York Times bestseller knows what she's doing is write it yourself, publish it yourself, or at least get it to the manuscript stage where you've written the whole thing, then send it out to publishers. Don't send it out to publishers when you're still in the idea stage, because you will think you're aligned about what you're working on. Next thing you know, you send the contract, they're like, we want to take this a different direction. And at that point, you have to. So write the manuscript and then send it out. And then you have at least can ensure alignment around the content.
2: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, two other things, and then we'll we'll, we'll we'll dive into some questions. One is, Mr. Lacey may deserve credit for this, but you seem to have struck a really good balance you know from what i can tell in the 3 days that the book's been out this is authentic max right it gives you a, a platform right to 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 help the business yeah and then you know this little bookmark which is in there share your favorite takeaways use the hashtag do better work that's good for you good yeah. for the book good for Lessonly. join the better work movement and get the weekly note yep. right which was a kind of foundational for the material in the book and then, you know, attend the Yellowship Conference and get some get, get, a, get a discount. So how did you and Kyle and the team kind of talk about what I know was important to you, which is that this book both be authentic and be helpful to the business? I mean, how yeah. conscious were these decisions?
0: Yeah, I got to give all credit to the marketing team, Ben, Anna, Kyle, Helen, Zach. So many folks who were like, we're going to put this in. We, we want to have, a, that's a bookmark. You know, We want to have a nice, cool bookmark, but we also want to tell people what we need from them. Because it's really important that everybody helps us get this book out if they're interested in it. If you read it and you're inspired by it and you want more people to do better work and you're kind of tired of people being frustrated at their jobs or frustrated at home, because all of these things that I did not say this, they all apply to home as well. That was kind of the cool overlap that we found is these are just behaviors about relationships. Everything I talked about is just behaviors about relationships. When you highlight what's working to your spouse or your friend, you're strengthening that relationship. You're like, you know what I love about you? I love that you do this and that and the other thing. That person loves that, loves to hear that, right? Sure. That's a relationship builder. You know what I love about this team? We do this thing, that thing, the other thing. It's the same same stuff. Yeah. So anyhow, we got to uh, kind of, we got to write the book we wanted to write. We get to share it with other people. They get to help us share it with other people. But the main thing I, I have not said yet that I think is, is important is this book was first and foremost to make sure that all of our team had alignment, really strong alignment. If we were able to do that, it was worth the time. We'd have 3,900 extra copies if that, if that was all we ever did, but that was first and foremost the goal, is just team alignment. And if, So writing from the perspective of how do I make sure our team, my teammates know the behaviors that I need them to, 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 to engage in, if, if that helps our teammates, it's probably gonna help other teams, was, was the idea. So it can kind of start creating a cascading effect. Yeah. And then, yeah, we got our, just a great marketing team. I mean, I can't tell you how many shout outs they get every week, because they think of stuff like that. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's good, that's really good. And I was thinking about this too, this is, uh, if, if I were a new employee at League, and I, there'll be 40 or 50 of them this year, right? This is a pretty cool way to onboard and yeah. get acclimated. Yeah, I mean, it tells a, tells a good amount about how things work at League. Yeah, you'll get that
0: before you start.
2: Yeah, yeah, very cool. Okay, so one, you covered a lot of this in your talk, but the one thing I wondered, Max, if you could elaborate on, because you, you've, you've shared this with me before, this idea of anti-fragility. Mm-hmm right? Maybe talk to the group a little bit I'm about so that.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. There's this gentleman named Nassim Taleb, and he coined this term anti-fragile. Steve Grassi, one of my teammates, actually told me about the book. And so I, I got the book and I was just blown away. The guy is uh, kind of a difficult read, not because he he just kind of goes on tangents, but it's worth reading. Anti-fragility, the concept is, we have words for fragile things and robust things, but we don't have words for things that gain from stress or disorder or chaos, and that's what anti is. So let me give you some definitions. A fragile thing is like a vase. If I drop it once, I might get lucky and it doesn't break, but if I drop it twice, it's probably gonna break. Fragile things do not gain from stress. They should be kept away from stress. Robust things, like a metal pipe, I can drop it or not drop it, and it doesn't get any better or worse. So it doesn't gain from the stress, it just stays the same. Antifragile things like our muscles or our antibodies, they gain from stress. If I get a little shot of something in my arm that makes sure I don't get sick later, what's happening is I'm getting a little dose of something stressful in my body and it helps my body prepare and grow and, and get better. Think about it like this. If I, maybe the most I can lift, let's just call it 100 pounds. If I lift 100 pounds today, guess what happens? Tomorrow my muscles allow me to lift 105 pounds. I never have lifted 105 pounds, but my muscles grow back stronger once I stress them a little bit. Mm. So the idea of antifragility is some things gain from stress and disorder, and most of those things are biological or system-based. So think about you. Uh, I talk about antifragile relationships in this book because a lot of us have fragile relationships. We come into stressful situations with our friends and our family members, and we don't talk about them, and it creates uh, a decay over time. It creates a fragility over time. Because now we know if we bring up that thing that we've been holding back for six years, it's probably not gonna make a relationship stronger. So anti-fragility is about kind of tackling that conflict, tackling that stress and talking it through it. What ends up happening then is we know one another better. We understand one another better. We can relate to one another better and we're stronger. Think about your stronger relationships. You're able to be candid with those people. You create anti-fragility. So anti-fragile is just basically a whole new way of looking at the world. Some things gain from stress. You are one of them. Do not avoid stress in your life. Put yourself in situations of stress. What you wanna do though is find acute stress, not chronic stress. Big, big, big distinction. Chronic stress is that commute that's 50 minutes a day, there and back, that maybe drives you crazy. Mm. If you have that in your life, you want to try to get that out of your life because chronic stress breaks you down over time. Acute stress mm. is like me doing that rep at the gym of 100 pounds yeah. and then getting jacked. Yeah. Uh, it's, only right, <laughs> it's only in that moment that I stress and then I rest. So think of acute stress as there's stress, and then there's rest and and rebuild period, and then stress, rest, rebuild period. We all need that in our lives. You've had it at work, and when you've had it at work, you've gotten better at work.
2: Mm. That's really good. It's interesting, it kind of occurred to me as you were telling that story, you've got a lot of readers at Lessonly. I mean, you've referenced two or three times a chapter in the book, a concept.
0: Is that something we screen for at Lessonly to make sure people are are readers? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great idea. Uh, That's a great idea. I'm, I, yeah, I'm a believer. I, Megan Jarvis pointed out to me, uh, she's our director of talent, that for, for, most, for the first 12 to 16 years of our schooling, we're given a syllabus. And then all of a sudden we graduate and there's no more syllabus. Mm. So we're not told what to read. And so we tend to just be like, where's my next syllabus from our, from our, from, from our jobs? You know, right. we're like, develop me. Right. Right. Uh, my, for 16 years, I've been developed. Keep developing me. But once we graduate, it's our jobs to develop ourselves. And I see no better way than reading. Don't watch documentaries. You're not developing yourself the same way. There's so much more density. I mean, you can watch documentaries. But, there's, but, but read books. Read books. Because here's why. You know how many times I edited those chapters? Yeah. Like 17. Like each one. Making sure I dial it in. When something goes through a publishing process, there's a high chance that it was thoughtful. That it was thought about. And you can, you can convey a lot of information really succinctly in a book. Read books. If you feel like you're not growing right now, I have the ticket. A library card and you will learn a heck of a lot. Find things that interest you, read the heck out of them. But we, I just, there's not a lot of reading. There's not enough reading in my in, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So the folks who come to me at work and say, I'm not developing, I said, what'd you read last?
2: Right, good. Yeah, that's
0: good. And that's probably why. They're like, well, I haven't read in a while. I'm like, I figured it out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's good. All right, excellent. This is really good. We're gonna get Max uh, Sharpie and he has agreed to stay up here and uh, sign some books. Will this be the first ever? Yeah, uh, this will like, be the first.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't have a great signature, so. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks everybody Yeah, please help me thank Max.
1: <laughs> stay up to date with Hi Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe that's highalpha.com slash newsletter
0: thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode speaker series rewind is brought to you by high alpha a venture studio that designs and builds b2b SaaS companies if you're a fan of the show leave us a rating on apple Podcasts wherever you listen you can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com podcast we'd really appreciate any reviews. It'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.